Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is a retired professional sports better. His success is widely known betting the NBA. He then went on to become a director of qualitative research and development for the Dallas Mavericks from 2018 to 2021. Please welcome Haralbus Vulgaris. Bob, thanks for coming on. Hey, Spanky. Thanks for having me. So, Bob, I always like to start with how was life growing up? How was life growing up? Uh, I grew up in Canada. Uh, both of my parents, Greek, first generation. Uh, they were born in Greece, moved to Canada. So I was like first generation Canadian. Um, growing up was fine. You know, it was different, a lot different than growing up nowadays, I think. Um, you know, it was easy, small town life in Winnipeg. Uh, didn't grow up with a ton of money, uh, for a little while. My dad was successful for a minute, but it was always fleeting. So, um, yeah, that's what it was like growing up. You know, Canada was, Canada was, I mean, Winnipeg, especially that was, was a pretty simple life. You know, play hockey in the winter, you know, play outside in the summer. Beautiful. Yeah. It was, it, was, it was a lot different. You recall your first interaction with gambling? Uh, I don't know about my first interaction with gambling, but gambling was like a huge part of my youth growing up. My dad loved gambling. He loved going to the racetrack. We'd go to a Cinnaboya Downs every Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's what this race schedule was. Uh, me and him would go together. I was the youngest. So I was the one he would take. Um, my first, ex- you know, my first exposure to gambling was probably that it was probably the racetrack uh, betting on, you know, my dad would give me like 50 bucks. I would tell him what I'd want to bet. And that would be that typical Greek. very young age too, by the way, like we're yeah. talking seven, eight years old, 10 years old, not, you know, yeah. Beautiful. So, um, you know, a lot of people cut their teeth at the racetrack. I, I myself also, you know, I recall those early memories being at the races. Um, a lot of people remember the first time they hit a big, you know, big exacted or, or, or a big, you know, pick three or whatever, some exotic bet or anything. Do you remember like how it felt or, you know, yeah. seeing uh, uh, how that big score first was? Me and my dad had a crazy day. So I forget what it was. I think it was called the twin triactor where basically it was, you had to pick the top three winners in order for a, tri- a trifecta, but it was, it was called a triactor in Canada. And so if you had a $2 ticket, a $2 winning ticket in leg one, then you'd have one chance to predict the second race, top three in order. So people were spending, I think, the, and it would carry over, you know, the, the pool would carry over. And so my dad ended up winning the twin triactor at least twice. It might've been three times. I think he was the only person to win it more than once. Uh, one was like for 56,000. I think one was for like 127,000, but it was chopped up three ways. There was three winners. So that was probably the first, the first winning uh, moment I had that I remember. I also had like another crazy one that I remember also, which was uh, my dad was very superstitious, like you know, he would have a dream, the colors would be red. So he'd want to bet the horse at the red. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And back then, like the silks were, you know, number one was red. Number two was white. Like the silks were number three, I believe was blue. So it was always standard unless it was a, a, a stake race or like a, a handicap race, like one of those, one of those races, then they'd have their own silks. Uh, but I remember there was like one day, I remember the name of the horse was birdie's jacket. It was like the one horse was like a $99. It wasn't 99 to one. It was because per two, per two dollars is the way they did it. So mm-hmm. it was like 50 to one basically. And uh, the horse actually didn't look bad on paper. Um, but anyways, we, this day at the track, I think we won like eight out of nine races. 
or we wow. just like, like just a ridiculous amount of money for back then for him. But, uh, so that day was amazing. And the reason we won the first race was because I went to this, we bought out of my parents owned a restaurant and I had to go to the, like the corner store to pick up some supplies from him. When I came back, the check was like $128 or something. So my dad bet one, two, eight. In the <laughs> I love it. One, two, eight oh, that's good. But that just kind of shows you the type of, you know, it's funny because it's so different than how I went about my gambling. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he was very superstitious and whatever dreams. And, you know, he was also very influenced by the people in front of him in line. If someone said, hey, I got a real, real hot tip, he would kind of take it. He was, he was more of a fly by the seat of his pants kind of guy, or I'm definitely not that. So that was a positive gambling moment I had. I also remember another one, which was when I, I, I tree planted in the summer. So this is when I knew I was never wanting to do horse racing again. And I also knew where I wanted to learn how to gamble, like successfully not gamble, but like actually win. Uh, I tree planted in the summer, which is like you live in Northern Ontario. You live in a tent for like two, three months at a time. You get paid eight to 10 cents a tree. Uh, you plant trees all day, nonstop. And so I tree planted all summer to pay for university. And uh, I took my money that I won the first year or that I made tree planting. And I took it to the racetrack and ran it up to in the, in, during this doing simulcast betting, I ran it up in Woodbine and I ran up like, I think it was 7,000 to like 48,000 within like the first week. And then I lost it all, like oh. all of it, <laughs> all of it minus like my, my expenses for the year. Wow. And so that was, that was, that was, that was literally the last time I ever stepped foot at Yosinaboy Downs uh, after I was just like, yeah, this isn't sustainable. Um, so what, what you know every 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 professional or, or anybody that you know that's made a living gambling you always remember that aha moment when you kind of saw yourself saying wait going from sucker to sharp yeah. do you remember something like that where you just remember hey this is this is the time in which i realized you know i gotta change the way i'm doing things and here's i the think way i realized i was a sucker Mm-hmm. But I don't think I, I I had a moment where I realized I was sharp until much later on. I think mm-hmm. I think mostly um, mostly for me I uh, and people, I've talked about this before, but I spent I spent a year or like a gap year um, in and I was in Vegas with my dad. He was gambling. Uh, he had gotten some score. He had gotten a hold of some money again. Um, I forget what it was from. It was from like some. I think he sold one of his buildings or it was like some lawsuit or something. I forget exactly what it was. But he spent some time in Vegas and I spent that time with him. So I just kind of sat in the sports book and I never really watched basketball before that. Wasn't really a huge basketball fan. I was always a hockey fan because my brother was a older brother was a hockey fan and I always looked up to him. And so, um, yeah, I don't know that I had an aha moment, but I just kind of realized that I could watch these games and learn. I, I literally lived the sport. So I was like every day, four o'clock, plant myself at Caesar sports book. You know, there's not a lot to do in Vegas if you're underage, but you could kind of hang out in the sports book and no one would bother you. Mm-hmm. You could go up and make a bet, but you could, you know, kind of if someone would say, hey, you got any ID? You just kind of like, well, it's not it's in my room. You'd walk away and come back. Mm. Uh, but so that was kind of the moment where I kind of realized that not necessarily that I had an edge, but just that if I put the work in, you know, I realized that I wasn't going to be looking at, the, at a receipt from the grocery store and yeah. with a bet. But I didn't really know what to do. And so I, I just kind of looked into it, locked into a few teams. I think the Golden State Warriors at the time were, uh, I think it was Chris Weber's rookie year. They were always on late at night. It was like the late game. It, was, it wasn't late. It was like seven o'clock Pacific. Mm-hmm. That would be the game. Those would be the games I'd watch a lot. And so I focused on the West Coast teams mostly. And I kind of started looking at over-unders. I think like that wasn't necessarily the aha moment that I had, but that was kind of like, 
the start of where I kind of realized like the amount of time and how I would do it. The aha moment I think happened probably, you know, a couple you know, number of years later, maybe like four, three, four years later. All right. So then after that, you, 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 the seed is planted now that, hey, maybe I could, I, I really like MBA and uh, I think I could do good on this. What, what did you wind up doing after, you know, you went to college and what, you know, describe, you know, the time right up to you said, hey, listen, I want to bet for a living. Yeah. I mean, I think what happened was I, I, I started following the sport a little more closely. I started working as a skycap at the airport while I was going to university, which is make, I was actually making a lot of money doing that, relatively speaking. I took over the Skycap company from uh, my boss because he was kind of a fuck up. Mm-hmm. And so I realized he was underbilling the, the airlines. And so I went to the airlines and underbid him. And then um, he was kind of lazy. He was okay with it. So, um, and I saved up a little bit of money when it was like 50 years, 50 years, I think it was 50,000 US, 70,000 Canadian at the time. And I, that's when I betted on the Lakers win the NBA championship that year. That's kind of like how I got my start. I just wanted to get out of Winnipeg by any means necessary. I was already in university. Was So there's like that gap between not being in university. Basically, at the Vegas year, then the university, I wasn't really betting that much because I was in school and I was actually trying to be like a good student. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really paying attention. But somewhere along the line, I just kind of got interested in Canadian football more, started with Canadian football, was betting on that, and then did the Laker bet because I was following NBA basketball. And when I the year that I made the, the year that I made the Laker bet, I was like really into the forums at the time. Like there was all the like betters world and yeah, uh, uh, I forget what that betters world was the only one I think at the time. Yeah, major, 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 where they weren't around then. It was they only around betters, betters, yeah, world. betters world was the only one that was around. I, yeah. I, yeah, I don't even think the prescription came out till a little bit later. Gotcha. Before that, it was rec gambling dot sports. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, it was a rec, was yeah, yeah, and yeah. so. You know, I got a Don Best screen, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't really betting enough to warrant one, but I wanted yeah. I wanted to see where the steam was going. And around that time, the um, the poker boys were betting baseball and the mm-hmm. moves were like, you know, there was like that whole thing where they had to move the line from a 10 cent line to a 20 cent line where Olympic switched. And there was that whole. So I was like into the sports betting world then, but I wasn't really super successful. But where I kind of figured shit out was I started betting halftime totals. Mm-hmm. And I think where I had my aha moment, which is, I guess, was I made a bet on the Utah Jazz game under some number, whatever it was. At halftime, I left to go work the night shift at the airport. At the half, they'd scored, like, I think the total was, I'm just making this up, but it was like around 188 points or something like that. And they scored, I think, like 77 in the first half. And I was just like, perfect. Like, how can I lose this bet? <laughs> you know, I thought yeah. it was good to go. It was a pretty big bet for me. I don't even remember who they were playing. I think it might have been might've been the supersonics. I don't know, but it was a, it was, a, it was a jazz road game for sure. And uh, went to the airport, was watching Yahoo sports center, that little Java app that they had with the scores. I had the computer up while yeah. I was working my shift. And I just like the second half was very high scoring and I lost. And so I was like, Oh, this is interesting. So then I started looking at like, okay, how often does that happen? How rare was this? Like I thought I had such a bad beat. And then I realized it happens quite often with that particular team. And so I started focusing more on subjectively looking at how teams, um, prepare for games and how they play first half, how their lineup substitutions work, how they're likely to match up. And that's kind of how I approached it. Not in a super systematic way, but I watched a lot of games. I recorded a lot of games and I tried to follow a lot of the West coast teams closely. So like, there were like a couple really good, you know, towards the end of the season, especially like the overs were really good. You could bet a lot of first half overs with some of these teams that were kind of out of the playoffs, but were just playing really fast, playing their end of bench guys. Um, I think there was like a game where the Lakers played the Clippers 
and it was Shaq's birthday and they wouldn't give him tickets to the game. And he made like this big stink about it, how he was going to score like 50 points or whatever. And I think the Clippers had like Keith Kloss and a couple other backup centers that were really going to be able to guard Shaq. So I remember betting that game over, like just a lot of little stuff like that, not systematic at any, in any way, mm. just for trying to get a feel for the pulse of how games are going. Oh, and, beautiful. Yeah. So, so that NBA, you said that Lakers bet, what year did you make that bet? And, 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 you know, you said 50,000, how much did you win on that to bet that? It was like six. I think my average price was just under seven to one. Um, but yeah, what year, what year was the year they won the championship? So 2000, I believe it was 2009, 2000 season. Oh, that's like, 2000 season, a long time ago. That, that would, so you would, that's the big fork in the road kind of thing that kind of guided the rest of your career. If you lose that bet, are we talking today? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty arrogant as people know, like I mean, arrogance, not the right word, but very confident. Like I work hard and I get obsessive about stuff. And so I was obsessive about being successful at gambling. It was, it wasn't a smart bet in any way, like futures bets in general, weren't, weren't, aren't smart bets. Um, but yeah, I think so because my plan was like, okay, I'm living in my brother's basement. I'm working as a sky cap. I've got this money saved up. This is just going to fast forward my life three or four or five years. If I lose the bet. I'm still going to go to university. Still going to get my degree. I'm still going to live in my brother's basement. I'm still going to sky cap. I'm still going to pull in like forty, fifty thousand dollars every summer in tips from the American fishermen that are that are flying up to Winnipeg to go off to the the lodges. Um, so yeah, I think we're talking. I mean, I don't think it had. I don't think it had that much of an impact because I mean, it had an impact obviously, but it just sped sped shit up for me. I I quickly decided that school wasn't a great, like I didn't want to go to grad school anymore. Moved to Montreal, invested in an online game gambling company, which a lot of people know about or may not know about. That was part of it. Um, did that for a little while. And then that was just kind of like, I knew I wanted to be involved in sports gambling. I wanted to bet. I wanted to be successful. I just wasn't sure. There wasn't data back then. That's the thing I think that people don't realize. There, like play-by-play -play data didn't become available until, like readily available until like the 2003 season. The league made it available to the teams in 99, but you couldn't get access to it. So around 2003, the play-by-play -play data. So back then the data I was looking at was just like split data of like box score data, not play-by-play -play data. Mm. Wow. This is fascinating stuff. So, man. All right. So, so you build up your bankroll now. Um, and, um, and, and you said, you, you know, you, you went to open up uh, uh, or invest in an, an offshore uh, sports book. How long did that last? And then were you also betting at the same time while you were doing that? Yeah. Betting quickly became like, I had the book from 2000 with some partners from 2000 and like 2005, I believe was when we sold it to Spiro. Um, and, you know, we were making, it was a small, I mean, I think the thing people don't realize is it was a small time book. Like mm -hmm. we didn't have a lot of customers. We didn't do a lot of advertising. It was just kind of like word of mouth. We had good software. People liked the software. My I, lo I, I love the software. I remember back then it was really good. The screen yeah. was all white. It was too good. It was bad because it was yeah. too fast. You could put in the rotation number at the top. Because I made I, I designed it with a better in mind, not realizing that I'd have to be taking bets. From <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, that's so it was like it was too fast. Like So we had to put in, but you know, we had like, we had the first approval queue where you put in a bet for over the limit and we'd sit there and, and decide whether we want to approve it or not. And gotcha. No had that online. Yeah. Was, I think WSEX might have been another one that had that. They had, um, no, they, I don't think they had a proof over. Maybe they did. I don't know. Yeah. We did copy a lot of WSCX's software because there was, we wanted fast. Yeah. Because uh, internet wasn't great back then. No. Um, but, you know, like the betting quickly became, so I, I figured out the halftime stuff very early on, very mm -hmm. quickly on. And I was doing CFL betting as well. And the betting quickly became way bigger than anything I was doing sports, like with the sports, but the sports book was kind of just like 
it was a good little revenue stream. You know, we made like a hundred, hundred a month, something like that, 57, 75 a month during the football season, maybe a little bit more. Um, but we ended up selling it because it was, it was, my goal was to do it and then try to flip it to one of these companies that was trying to go public. Mm-hmm. And then the wheels just kind of came off of that where that just, it was just obvious that these companies, you know, it was no longer gray in terms of like a gray area business. It was mm-hmm. a black business once yeah. UIGA and all the other stuff that they passed. I guess UIGA wasn't, was it UIGA then, or was it more, I, I forget if it was UIGA. It was, there, there was some, the main thing that happened to us is we are, I would say 95% of our business this predates NetTeller was PayPal. Okay. So PayPal got bought by eBay. And yep. when that happened, we just had like, now you're telling some guy to send some money to, you know, Jose, whatever, and he's <laughs> like, be a Western union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the same as, Hey, do you know what PayPal is? Yes, I do. Right? <laughs> yeah. And you could auto batch payments, like pay out people via PayPal. It was great. Yeah. 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 Oh, I remember those days. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. Jose, Jose, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's so, all right, so this is cool, man. So, so all right, so, so you, you know, you you sell the company now. Now you're starting to bet. The betting takes over. You mentioned CFL. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. What made you try to model CFL? Why? What? What kind of lured you towards that? And then when did NBA take over? CFL was like a super inefficient market, but the offshore. You know, you you. I met some guy in Vegas who was a who's a who's a runner who told me he can get down a lot on anything. So when I, was, when I was with my dad and I just remember thinking like, I'm not, I'm trying to bet 50 bucks a game, but I care. So I, you know, called this guy up a couple of years later, three years later, um, CFL, I didn't really model. There was no data for the CFL CFL um, people. This is thing people don't realize is I was an entirely subjective better up until around about 2007, 2008. Now I used data to inform my decisions, but there was no model. There was no such prediction model up until post 2008 all-star break really. Um, and so the CFL was like wildly inefficient to the point where like, you know, like they expanded the, where the real prime years was when they expanded to the U S and the U S teams had a bunch of different rules. U S teams did not have to have a certain amount of Canadians on their roster. So the U S teams just automatically better. Like Canadian teams always had like a Canadian punter, a Canadian offensive lineman, maybe like a Canadian field goal kicker. And then they slowed to have more Canadians on their team. I forget what the rules were. The Americans didn't have such rules. So like quickly, the first American team, like the Baltimore, whatever they were called, Stallions, they won the CFL championship, the Grey Cup. Um, there was a lot of inefficiencies. Like the stadiums weren't, they weren't consistent. So like the Canadian Football League stadiums are different, or not the stadiums, but the fields are different. The, you know, you have 55-yard field, so the, and the end zone's 20 yards instead of 10 yards. But in some of these American stadiums, there was not, there were not 20 yards. They were like, you know, like a triangle state, triangle end zone. Oh, okay. So they would play like a home and home sometimes with the a Canadian in the Canadian stadium, then go to the American stadium and the total would be roughly the same. And it's like, I mean, it's obviously easier to throw a touchdown if you have 20 yards of end zone than if you have like 15 and a half in one corner and 18 in the other corner, because it's because the, because the end zones aren't fully 20. There's also like a possibility. I don't know if this has actually ever been confirmed, but I think some of the American stadiums weren't actually 110 yards. So like a yard wasn't actually a yard. It was like nine tenths of a yard. Uh-huh. I don't know. That's the rumors I heard that, but the leading rusher in the CFL uh, played primarily in, in, in Montreal and in Baltimore. And like, you know, the, the joke was that like, if you, if you measured the 10 yards, it wasn't actually 10, like the chain wasn't 10 yards. It was like nine point something yards. Cause they, they had to figure out a way to jury rig this, this field. I don't know about that, but so there's like little things like that. There was, 
you know, some of the, some of the teams are, you know, the difference between the starting quarterback and the second quarterback was extreme in some cases, in some cases, some teams had really good backup quarterbacks. It's like anything you bet the NFL, you know, the teams, Mm -hmm. no one else is really paying attention. I don't know who is making the Canadian football league lines, but they were awful. I can honestly say that. Um, I was betting a lot of totals, a lot of sides. I think the biggest bet I ever had at that point in my life, um, I was dealing with a Montreal, uh, a Montreal, like, he was a bookmaker. I was, he was a guy I bearded into. Uh, well, I actually didn't beard into him. I bet into him, but he didn't really know who he was. And then I won so much money, I got cut off. And then I bearded into him. And he was like a full-on Goomba. And he, you know, this guy found out who I was. One of his associates came up to me and was like, are you interested in talking to, to my boss about betting? And I played stupid. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I ended up doing a sit-down in some Italian restaurant. Um, it's actually funny because this guy later on paid the biggest gambling fine in the history of paid the biggest, I think criminal fine in the history of Canadian. Uh, he was a big bookmaker. So in the big criminal Canadian criminal history, uh, but I didn't know what he wanted, but what he wanted was he wanted to partner with me and he wanted to make, basically have me give him my bets. He would get down for me. He would handle everything. And I thought at first I was like, not interested, not interested. And then I met the guy who was super nice. I was like, what's the worst we can try it out. And so he, he was the guy who moved all my Canadian football and my basketball for a couple of years uh, before I got up with my, my Vegas guy later on. So this is probably like whenever it was, it was, it was the, so the biggest bet I ever had was the Eastern final in the Canadian football league. It was the Alouettes were the home team and the Argos were the away team. I think the Argos are like an eight and a half point uh, underdog or something like that. And I thought they would win the game. Oh, right. Like I was like, this is, they had the best defense. Our defense was unbelievable. And like, that's like kind of like the inefficiency back then was just like people valued offense. I think Montreal had Anthony Calvillo as their quarterback and Toronto had Damon Allen. Wasn't that, he was good, but he was not great. Um, so anyways, I had a big bet. I think then we had like 250,000 on that game or something total of which I had half. That was probably the biggest bet I ever had at that point on a camp. And they won outright. Uh, yeah. I think the line went down to like, Six and a half or something. We Did you bet the money, money line, or you bet that you took the points? No, we took the points. We didn't bet uh-huh. the money line. The money line, I, I, it's funny. I we might have had the money line for like ten thousand or something mm. small, but I don't think we. I think we just bet the points. Um, I was also betting with a. I was playing poker around that time too, and I, I was betting with a um, with a professional poker player, PLO guy who said he could get me down for some bets. So he was moving my CFL as well. So I was doing that, and an, an NBA. And CFL was great, but there's just very, you know, I'd have maybe like one to two bets a week on CFL, if that. Whereas NBA, I was, you know, regularly having bets. Well, I think that's fascinating. I think that, that that kind of tells a little bit of the story on, on you know, for anybody that's listening that doesn't really know how the industry works, you know, to, to, to be able to scale up in professional sports betting, um, I don't think there's any ways about it. You have to deal with the underworld. In to some sure. extent, and 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 you know nobody wants to, you know what I mean. We we would love to be able to just go into a Vegas casino and they'll take whatever we want, but that okay. just doesn't happen. No shot. So um, to be honest with you, like the, I don't, I've never done any gambling podcasts before, mm-hmm. and but the main reason why I want to do your podcast is because you're kind of like an advocate for this, and and, and for the fact that these books will not take bets, and that nothing bothers me more than that. That the idea that gambling is sold is like anyone could bet. It's fine. Like they're not, no one's taking my bets. This is not happening. And so, um, so yeah, so you're, you know, I, that's one instance of me dealing with the underworld. I could make the hairs on the back of your head 
the back of your neck stand up with other people that I've dealt with around the world, like Eastern, <laughs> okay. European, Eastern Europeans. You know, yeah, Eastern we'll, we'll get into all that. We can get into all that. But <laughs> a lot no, 100%. That. It, it, yeah. This is how, but this is how, in order to scale up and, 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 and make enough money to make it all worthwhile, you just have to do it. And, and it's a shame that that's the case, but I appreciate it, Bobby. We're trying, you know, my, my one little voice in the corner is trying to make things, uh, hopefully have things change for the better. I'd like to, I'd like to, I'd like to be more vocal about, I mean, I'm not, I'm not interested in getting back into gambling. It's too small for me, no matter how much money I can, I can make, like, you know, people think whatever people think, like I could comfortably make $10 million a year, I think betting on basketball and then baseball and some other stuff, but it's just the amount of, I know the amount of work I would have to do to win. It would be, it would be like 70, 80 hours a week. And it's like, it's, it's the money. A is not that, that, that relevant and B, the lifestyle adjustment, like I was not a happy person when I was gambling. Like I never had any relationships because I was working. Like I'd have date night on Thursday night because there was only two TNT and NBA games that night. Like <laughs> a lot of stuff like that. Like during basketball season, I was, I was working as I'm sure you do every day, 6 a.m. Pacific till the last game is over because I'm a, I'm a sicko and I wanted to watch the games. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a grind, but yeah, the, the, the gambling part of it is, is, is you have to deal with those people. You're not getting down. You just have to. Yeah, betting sports professionally, it's a hard way to make an easy living, and yeah. um, it's 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 You're it's tough. To testament to it. <laughs> yeah, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. If I didn't stop gambling. I still, I'd still, I'd still, uh, you know, I'd, 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 I'd be looking a lot worse than I do now. And not that I look great, but I would definitely, I definitely, <laughs> no. definitely slowed my aging process by by not working those those types of hours. One hundred percent. And and also, also like the thing that people don't realize is like. You know, a lot of people, if they watch me play poker, they think I'm a nit because I'm, you know, I'm always trying to play the odds or whatever. But like, if I know I have an edge, I, I can be super aggressive. And so like, when I was gambling, I was not trying to gamble for like some, I was trying to make enough money to buy a basketball team. So I was like pushing every edge. I was regularly betting above my bankroll on credit when I knew my edge was big enough. Once I knew that my edge was good enough, you know, running some, especially once the NBA angles I had started coming into play, like I had no problem my bankroll was 2 million, I had no problem having like, you know, a million of that in action every day. You know? Yeah. I would bet more if I could, it just, we were just couldn't get down more. Yeah. No, that's, that's, it's, 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 it's crazy. Uh, credit is big in this business without credit. You know what I mean? That's what stretches everybody. And some people I never really did a lot of post-up to be perfectly honest. Yeah. No, like I don't. Post-up was a sucker's game. I posted yeah. up for my, by the way, I posted up for my Lakers bet. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That was so that, that was all post up. I was post up. I bet Carib. I bet that I bet bet Chris. I bet the Greek. It wasn't called the Greek. It was called Bet Olympic. I had like WWT. I had all those. I was betting all those places. Post up yeah. and some at the Mirage uh, in Vegas as well. It's amazing. You, so to, to get all those places, you needed all those places to get down fifty thousand. No, nope, yeah. not one person would just take the fifty thousand bet one shot. You'd have to. Shot, yeah. I mean, you yeah. probably wouldn't want to because you'd want to spread. I mean, I, that then I wanted to spread. I mean, it was like my whole. I wanted That's to cool. spread the risk around. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure Spiro might have. I didn't know him personally at the time. I was just mm-hmm. like a random HV whatever seven two zero zero whatever was my, was my account number. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> random, had no idea who I was. So I just <laughs> was like, yeah, let's just put the bets in. Awesome. Okay, so yeah, this is um. So, you know, I, I, I want to talk about when you're, you're starting to win now, and we, you just touched on this. When did you start realizing at, at that point now that, you know, I know you have to deal with the underworld and then you have to go other places. When did you realize that getting down was, was just as, if not more important than winning? Because, you know, nobody's taking your bets. Uh, 
What else did you have to do besides go to the underworld? Did you have to beard? And let's talk about a few of these techniques that you had to, uh, that you had to do um, and yeah. des- describe them. Cause a lot of people might not know what a beard is or, or, so, or whatnot. Well, beard is just a, a suck. I mean, a lot of the, re- the main reason why I played poker was to expose myself to the gambling world more because mm-hmm. no, I was just kind of keeping to myself in, in Canada. And so, um, you know, you go to these poker tournaments and you're coming into contact with other people. It was also later on, it was also the reason why I did a lot more publicity is because I wasn't selling anything, but if someone could get in, like my biggest account ever came from some guy who read the ESPN article and reached out to me and was like, or my, my account, my biggest getter got me, you know, he reached out to me. He was an Eastern European guy. He met, he met me and he, he actually traveled to the Monaco EPT just to meet with me, to talk to me about sports. I could barely speak any English, but he wanted to tell me that he had these big accounts in, in Eastern Europe that he, that, I, that he could help me with. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, so Beard is basically just a guy that, usually a VIP or a whale who's a losing better. Maybe he's a losing pit better in the casinos, or maybe he's just a historically losing poker player, or excuse me, sports better. And you, you know, open up an account with him in his name. He makes the bets and you come to some arrangement. I, I, I would offer people two deals. I'd offer them a 25% free roll in which they had, uh, they'd get hundred percent of the wins. I, you know, they, if, if, we, if I lost money, they would get 25%. And if, or if I won money, excuse me, they would get 25%. And if I lost, they'd have no risk. So it was a free roll. And we would do that. Sometimes we go up to 30%, but I guess I don't, you know, now it doesn't really matter. Back then I'd always say it was 25, but we'd always go up to 30 if we had to. And yeah. another deal I'd offer was a 50-50 share where they, where they actually had the downside risk as well. So if we lost money, they lost. If we won money, they won. Whereas a free roll guy, doesn't matter if we lose, he's still gonna, he's, 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 he goes into the red, but I mean, reset the free roll every year. Um, but I would love it when a guy would take the free roll. Like if a guy wanted to be partners, I'd be like, are you sure? You know, this is like a little bit, you know, risky. There's a chance we might lose. Like, why don't you take, why don't you take the free roll for the first year? See how it goes. And, you know, because then now I'm getting 70% of the action versus 50% of the action. I knew I was not losing. Like that just wasn't happening. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so that was, that's, that's how you get down a lot. I mean, I've had some pretty famous beards in my time. I've had movie stars. I've had, uh, uh, you know, social media personalities i've had professional poker players who are well known who bearded for me who are like degenerates um and that's just part of the deal you just have to have that the problem with dealing with beards is they're in control of the money and so you're dealing with degenerates sometimes mm. and so the last thing you want is like you want a, a businessman with a good record is what you want someone who wants to win and once you give them that taste of winning they stop you know a couple of bad things can happen like let's say you get a great pinnacle account yeah and the guy's losing money betting football and now you're betting basketball and it's winning and the book doesn't care because it's it's balancing out but the last thing you want is for that guy to get a taste of the winning and he stops making his football bets mm. but the other thing you don't want is for him to be degenerate and lose too much where now the he still owes the book money and you're not getting your share which has happened to me yeah yeah i had a famous poker player beard into an account we won seven million he managed to somehow still owe the bookmaker six million on top oh of that. my god yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, oh man, this is, yeah, it's crazy stuff, the world. Uh, so celebrities, the, the, you know, poker players, um, all this, like, you know, because this is, this is, this is, you know, it's not every day um, that people hear this stuff. Did, did you find it more that you, it got to a point that your reputation around, you know, whispers started happening where people were approaching you more than you were approaching yeah. them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is how it went down. So I, I, I would, I started out betting my own on my own stuff with my own, my own post up accounts through all these like 
WSCX, et cetera, Korea, whatever, blah, 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 the Greek. Then I got, then I got in touch with the uh, Italian guy in, in, in Montreal, uh, the restaurant guy who was probably mobbed up. I don't know, allegedly, who knows? Uh, made bets through him on BlackBerry Messenger. It was a little, only, he gave me the first BlackBerry I'd ever seen in my life. We were <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I would give him the picks. And then after that, uh, after that, then I started getting into, I, I used the guy who actually was a customer at one of, at, was a customer at, um, at a sports book, at my sports book. And this guy was like betting steam nonstop. And I was like, look, bro, like you're done. He'd call me up yelling at me. And so I just started having conversations with this guy. And I was like, what do you do? And you know, I was like, hey, you want it? So he started, anyways, he started moving for me. This guy's named Steve from Vegas. You know him, you know his, you might not be him, but you know, like his people. Yeah. Like probably animals like sheep and all those guys knew. Yeah. So this guy basically he now, now he ran all my betting from I want to say 2003 along with the, um, there was an overlap between him and the and the Montreal guy um, where I bet both of them at the same time. Um, but he ran most of my betting for me to the point where people didn't know that I was the sharp guy betting basketball. It was him whose basketball was sharp, and he was the guy who was betting sharp basketball. Like we killed it. He was the guy. And so, but he was moving for everybody. He was moving for Spiro. He was moving for this guy, moving for that guy, moving for, the, for Tiger, football, NFL football for Tiger, preseason football for Tiger. I think Tiger famously went broke betting preseason football, which is pretty remarkable. Like lost his bankroll betting. Imagine that. <laughs> one year. Yeah. 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 They were, they were great at preseason football. And I think they had one bad year and that was that. Gotcha. Uh, he can confirm or deny. I don't know if it's true. Uh, but anyways, so that, so that's, that was kind of, I used him up until 2009 ish didn't really do any had like got a few sports accounts gave them to stevie like hey this guy's got an account for us let's do it like through poker like hey whatever whatever um but primarily stevie ran all of the all the sports stuff and then he ran off with like you know whatever i think what i i, I looking back I, I when i talked to you the other day i thought about this like, i think what happened was i generally lost the last two weeks of the nba season in fact the last day of the nba season was always my worst I'd always be betting from the Bellagio while I was playing poker. Mm -hmm. So whenever I, I always lose, and so I think what probably happened is he probably booked my last two weeks of the NBA season uh, that one year. And I, I, I figured out what I was doing wrong and fixed it. And we won a lot of money. And so uh, I think like a big part of it was like, Sean Livingston on the Wizards were great unders. Gilbert Arenas was like a great over. Like all there's all these little things that were happening that I kind of like, I, I did a better job of like predicting the variance of the lineups at the end of the season. Because um, most of my historical edges kind of evaporated by the end of the year. The halftime stuff would be baked in and books would start adjusting. They didn't know why they were adjusting, but they knew someone was wanting to bet this first half over, this first half under, et cetera, et cetera, on that team. So um, yeah, I don't kind of get going from place to place here, but that's, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, that was kind of the, uh, the arc of how it went. Now, once I started having to control my own betting, that's when I focused more on beards, trying to find people myself at poker tournaments, you know, getting like, you know, people that I was friends with that knew someone or whatever. And yeah, people, it was also like, I think, I don't remember what year I did the ESPN article. I want to say, I don't know what year it was, I guess 2000, I don't even know, but whenever that happened, that's when the Eastern European thing came. That's when people started wanting to contact me. Before that, no one really knew that I was, there was a little bit here and there, but not a lot. Yeah, I, I, you know, just to speak out of personal experience, I've obviously heard rumblings and I saw, you know, I knew that, uh, you know, we were, because my hand was on the pulse back then too. And um, no, you're definitely. Up front, you were stealing my plays in the morning. 
And <laughs> I, I was betting in Asia to bet into the U.S. market. You can say it. It's okay. Yeah, no, it was. I think stealings are, you know, investigating, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> decipher, deciphering. I'm not, you know what I mean? I never. Uh, you didn't you, steal anything that you're allowed to do it. There's nothing yeah, wrong. Yeah, stealing has yeah. such a negative connotation, Bob. I think that's a strong okay. word. You were, you were, you were. Deciphering, uh, deciphering. Deciphering, yeah. So we, yeah. we had an account. In Taiwan, we had some accounts in Asia. I think that some of them were in Taiwan, some of them, were in, I don't know where they were, but we had this guy in Asia that was getting us the best accounts you could ever possibly imagine. And the market was massive over there. Like when I say massive, I mean, like I have no idea how much this guy was betting. But I know I was getting down like 100, 150 Mayan. And, you know, we started with the guy, we, we, would, we would bet first via fax machine. We'd send the bet in via fax machine. We'd wait, we'd wait for the bet confirmation to come back. Okay. Like Lakers minus knowing that Kobe Bryant's out and it's already blasted across Don Best. Like they opened up their halftime lines because the, because of the time difference, they want to go to sleep. So they opened up their halftime lines before like Chris and Pinnacle. And I guess the Greek, depending on who was around then, I don't even know if Pinnacle was back around big back then, but Chris and the Greek certainly were the guys who were originating the lines. And they opened the Asian market opened up before those guys for a couple of years. And so, um, so yeah, we bet heavily into the Asian market and then would sit there and pray that the bets would go through, you know, then we started betting via MSN messenger with them. And once they started, they got, they found a guy who could speak English. It was great. So <laughs> we have to like circle the bet and put like arrow up for over and down all of their numbers. <laughs> That's good. A lot of stuff. So it was, um, but yeah, so that was, that was around the time that, I think people knew someone's betting this stuff and it's sharp and um, but I don't think they necessarily knew it was me. I think they thought it was like this Vegas guy, Stevie or whatever was betting. Um, and the Asian market, how, you know, did, did, did I, you know, were they booking your bets pretty early in the day also? Like, yeah, no, this is 5 a.m. Pacific. Wow. Yeah. We were betting 5 a.m. Pacific on first half totals, full game totals. And getting those type of amounts down is, uh, is such a, you know, especially at that hour, let alone game, even if that, that hour is just unheard of. And they paid like clockwork, never any issues. You sometimes had to like, you know, figure out a way to get like, you know, the account, whatever. but, but like, they, you know, Stevie always was able to collect the money. I don't know how he did it, but he did gave me my cut. My, you know, my, took his, whatever he was on a free roll deal. Stevie was for getting down. And uh, yeah, so that's how that went. And then after, after that disappeared, I still worked with the Asians afterwards but their market slowly, slowly, slowly started deteriorating every year. Like it went from great the first two years to pretty good years, three and four. And I guess when you started doing it was probably around 2009 or 2010. Maybe is that right? 2008. Oh, Maybe. I've been in the game since. since no, no. I mean like specifically the Asian outfall. Oh, the Asian outs. Um, uh, yeah. Around. I had, I was starting to do Asians in around 2008, 2009. Yeah, exactly. You were you. I, I don't know what you were doing, but like it, it seemed to me like you were looking at the Asian market, seeing like when their lines were different than the American market, and you yes. inferred, and you inferred that those were sharp bets. Is that Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yes, exactly. Yeah. Not rocket science, but yeah. it did the trick. <laughs> That's smart. Look, it's it's. Yeah. I'm sitting there building fucking models and watching it. And you're just waking up and going to like whatever. I'm just seeing what the Chinese have on. That's all. <laughs> exactly. And so. Um, so yeah, so we we did that for a while. Uh, we faked the Chinese people sometimes too. Like it was bad because like I know this guy's betting a ton more. I had a conversation with that. I flew to Taiwan one year. I met the guy and I was like, "Look, I want to do a 50-50 deal where you're getting that whatever it is you're getting on. I want fifty percent." And he's like, "Okay, fair." And then I, I think like he was roughly doing about that. I think he was actually maybe betting less. I didn't know. 
I was dealing with another guy in 2005 who was betting probably five to seven times what I was betting, but that account quickly blew up and that guy disappeared. I don't know what happened to him. I was working through a New Zealand Aussie guy who put me in touch with him. So, um, but yeah, the Asian market was great. It was the best, the best of the best. I think the people are very honorable paid all the time. Um, and you know, they just wanted, I don't know why they were taking bets. It didn't make sense to me, but for whatever reason, I guess, I don't know what time it is over there at six in the morning. I guess I could figure it out. It wasn't, but it was like, you know, it was just such a, it was just a situation where they had to open early because they had to close at like 10 by 10, 10 a.m. Pacific. They were, they wanted to be done. Did they, did they, cause some, depending on the outs that some people deal all five standard, cause that's usually the, uh, the standard. Yeah, we, we, we made a deal with them because they would fake a lot. And we would give them like, I, that's the thing that people didn't, like I had very, very strict, like probably too nitty, like only over 101 and a half, no 102s. Like, so they would fake the market. They would, we, we would happily gave them minus 110. I was happy. I was always happy to pay minus 110. I didn't mm. give them. If it was a situation like that and you want to make four or five cents off of that versus taking more of the act of the edge for yourself to get down, that's fine. Beautiful. Uh, just, just quote me minus 110. That's good. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. So you talked about disguising the work. Now let's talk about that. What, um, you know, faking the Asian market. Um, faking know, the Asian market was a little expensive. No, so obviously. If you're betting 50K the wrong way, now you better hope you can get back and you better hope Spanky's there banging the bot. Uh, it became much easier. We figured out. <laughs> it just became much easier to just fake. Um, so, okay. Once I started betting my own stuff, running the betting myself with my people that I employed, after Stevie left, that's when the faking started happening. Before that, I just like turned it over to Steve and he ran it. And I didn't really care what he did. I don't know what he did. But when I was doing it 2008-ish and on, 2008-ish, 2009-ish on, um, you know, we we would fake Pinnacle. We'd fake Chris in the morning. Not exactly the most sophisticated method of faking originally. But the cool thing about Pinnacle is they knew we were faking. And they some of the accounts were like, one of the accounts was in my name, a post up in my name. And they, they were happy to take the bets. They didn't go up and ruin my market. They were happy to know what the right side was, not blow up the spot. They would move the line where we wanted them to. We'd be able to get down 20 to 30 minutes later. That was part of the faking. Once we developed the bot, which people don't know what the bot is, it's just like this robot that goes out and bets every account at the same time. Someone has to programmatically program it. You put it in. Once we developed the bot, we started developing heuristics to see which accounts were leaking more quickly you know, which, which accounts when we made, we, we would bet like half the bot at this time of day, half the bot later. Like we, we would, we would separate the bets and do tests to see what was leaking to the market. When I say leaking, meaning like getting to the screen and seeing the Don best screen move and having pinnacle move. And then we started like having more fun with the, you know, manipulating the market. But, um, but yeah, we would, we would have to, you, you know, there's a couple of things like you, you, the huge art to it is like you, so let's say you are able to pick the winners. That's a big part of it then how can you make sure your edge can sustain itself for as long as possible? Yeah. That's, I think where my, that's, I think where I was really good is I, you know, I wanted to make sure like this idea of closing line, like if you were a, a closing line value guy in the year after the NBA lockout, which I think was the 2012 season, the 2011, your closing line value was garbage because I made sure that the line moved against me every time I bet at the end, because we had an outlaw that was taking up to 500K a game on anything, as long as we bet 15 minutes before post time. His market never leaked. It was through like a great beard that he didn't think the guy was sharp. So we purposely, after we got off the phone with this guy, we would fake the market down sometimes in the opposite direction to make it look like we were betting dumb stuff. Um, this so is that beautiful. Was, 
So that was like, that was the funnest. That was honestly the funnest year ever. So I don't remember. Let me just look when, when the NBA, when the NBA lockout was, but the NBA lockout year was the 2011 season. And that year was like stone cold bet under for the first month of the season. And just like, it was easy because the players are rusty. It was sloppy. So that was a huge edge. That was the 2011 season, 2012 season. They're using 2011 data to build their lines. Mm. So artificially the lines are lower than they should be because they think the game is more inefficient because they're using two years of data. Probably we use mm. two years of data. Uh, and part of the data is like the 2011 lockout dirty data. And so we had a square account, uh, not a square account, but we had a beard bearded into this like outlaw for those down. Does your audience know what an outlaw is? Oh, no, describe it. You know? Yeah. So outlaw is like some local bookmaker in some part of this guy who happened to be in Texas uh, I think, I don't know. I didn't deal with them, but some local bookmaker who uh, is, is an outlaw. He's not like, he doesn't have a legal business. He's like, he's, he's paying and collecting in person. And so we had a guy who, who allegedly had an outlaw account with this, this guy who's, I think was the biggest bookmaker in the world at the time. We're talking Beaumont, Texas. I don't know where we're talking. I had no <laughs> idea where it was. Cause I didn't have any dealings with him personally. No, I from, know, I know. <laughs> aside from me having to pretend to be this VIP on the phone, yeah. Uh, to him, no, I'm kidding. Uh, he, yeah, he, he was, he was a legend and he took a lot of big bets and I was bearded into him. Some people would say he loved to take action. Yeah, he did love to take action. And so, uh, I had, I had at the, my peak in 2012, I had three guys bearded into him. And the funny thing about this guy is I actually, the first guy who got me bearded into him was a poker player, friend of mine, not really a poker player, but like a, a rec poker player, friend of mine, uh, gas trader who uh who basically said like i want to bet basketball you're going to deal with my guy and my guy's going to bet so i was like okay he's that's what this guy said okay go for it so i call up this guy to make my first bet and he's like who the fuck are you and i was like i'm bill's friend he's like okay well uh what's your deal and then one day i called him without star six sevening my phone so he you know came up my name h bulgaris <laughs> so he's like i'm not taking your bets i don't know who he is. this is after the spn article had already come up so he basically wouldn't take my bets but the funny thing is is like we're he was only giving that guy twenty thousand a game yeah he'd be much better off letting me and then taking 500 on the other guys you know what i'm saying yeah but he, so we got him we got bearded into him with a hollywood guy uh a um kind of like a, a a whale guy that we told to go gamble at the casino when this guy was gambling and and strike up a conversation about sports betting. So he got in there and bet with him. Um, and then we got into him with a poker player that everyone, I think everyone probably knows who that guy is. It's like, you know, people, I, I was the guy who I claimed owed me money for a long time. So he was the third guy that we got in with. And so, yeah, we, we would bet and I had to manage that where, you know, I'd had to bet. Sometimes they, the two, the three had to bet on the same side of a game. And sometimes I had to bet opposites on games. We didn't really have an opinion on and just burn the juice and but the funny thing is, is the one great account that we had, we wanted this account to be the premium account. So it was a guy I liked working with the most. He was honorable. He'd always pay. He was easiest to deal with. And he was the one I personally liked the best. And so I wanted this guy to make the most amount of money, not like I, to the detriment of the others, but I just wanted to make sure this guy's account lasted the longest. And so we quickly were like, geez, it's 2012. It's the year after the strike. Overs are pretty decent value. Let's just never bet an under for the first month or two of the season with this guy. Oh, beautiful. We would just pick up the phone, just bet over every game. Mm. First two weeks, now action starts catching on. And let's say the, the, the screen has like 184 or like, I guess maybe not 184, but maybe like say 199. He's going to quote like 200 and a half. Mm. So we had to actually fake the market 
at like noon, because this guy would only take a bet 30 minutes prior to post time. We used to have to fake the market and pray that it held up when the limits were a little bit lower. So we'd have to spend too much money faking the market. On unders, just so the line, let's say, instead of being 199 and a half, it would be like 197 and a half, just so we could bet 199 and a half with this guy because he was quoting a higher number. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of stuff like that. Um, and it's negative closing line value. It looks like complete sucker work. You're only betting overs, which is a, which is a, such a staple of any sucker. For sure. Um, One day we had to start betting some unders, and he was just like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I remember the guy on the phone was like, what's that? Like, oh, we'll take the under. Yeah, he quoted us like 204 and a half on a game that was like 201 and a half or something. Like, oh, I'll take the under there. He's like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, the other thing funny about that guy from Beaumont, <laughs> Texas is, <laughs> honorable guy, but I think we had like 25 figure discrepancies over the course of two years and not one of them were in our favor. <laughs> like when he quoted a wrong figure, it never just happened to be in our favor. It was always, yeah. he always got the figure wrong. It just always happened to shake out in his favor. Uh, yeah. But we, the, we, go ahead. He paid like clockwork, no? He paid like clockwork up until the tail end of that season when uh, he was like, ah, I can't take your bets anymore because if you win, I won't be able to pay you. And matter of fact, I don't got enough money to pay you the money I owe you. That's what he said. So he didn't pay the last little bit. Uh, it took like a couple years for him to pay off that, but he finally did pay. It was honorable, but he just, we just, we just put him out of it. Uh, a couple things happened. We put him in a bad spot. And then I think he had some other very big VIP uh, poker degenerates who were betting into him who lost money and didn't pay. Mm. So he was owed like eight or nine from this guy and didn't get the money. And now because of that, we didn't get our, our money, but we, we got most of it at the end, but it took like a couple of years to get it all. Matter of fact, someone saw him at a friend of mine, saw him in Biloxi and apparently he had turned like five grand into like, I don't know, some ridiculous amount of money shooting dice over like a two day period. My friends are like, yo, you got to get, you got to call up so-and-so and and tell him to get down to Biloxi or Tunica because action is rolling dice here and he's got money. So I called him up and I was like, Hey, I heard you're having a good time. You know, do you got money? Some money for me. He's like, if you can get here before it's all gone, it's yours. So my guy flew there and, and, uh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. No, nah, man, I, that's, that's, you know, th- this, this bookmaker you're talking about is legendary in a business. Yeah. I unfortunately was never able to get my, you know, they, I would always ask around, but nobody ever uh, <laughs> let me get into them. Yeah. Uh, so. I think it'd be tough for a guy like you to get into them just because you can only bet 30 minutes before post. Yeah, no, nah, it, it would have been, you know, we would have figured it out. I just know that the one thing I heard is that sometimes you like want to go to a game or something and he would call up some, some cu- a customer that I know he had. And he would say, listen, I'm at this game. You got to bet me something. Um, and, and he would like kind of like a force bet. And- I, I never had any experience. I, I never dealt with him directly. It was always gotcha. my, my beards, but um, yeah, I don't know about that. I just know that now first I thought like, am I getting hustled here? Yeah. Like with the first guy that I was betting when this account, like, is this even real? Yeah. Like, is this just a way for me to see if I can lose money and then get stiffed? If I yeah. Win? If it's too good to be true, it probably is usually, right? Yeah. But, it, but you know, I think like a younger version of me wouldn't have taken that chance. Older, I think I was a little bit more like, okay, let's be a little more open-minded here. Because I definitely got scammed. I never really had any huge stiffs, uh, with the exception of Stevie. Uh, you know, I think our stiff rate on book on betting was probably like under under 8% every year historically. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Total volume bet, you know. It's just like, and we were, and, our, and by the way, our ROI you know, people are going to be like, oh, this is bullshit. But our ROI was always like around seven to nine percent every year, making 1800 to 2000 NBA bets a year. 
So we're betting more than once, once per game usually, because we're betting like the first half, second half, you know, full game. Uh, you can bet a game a number of ways, side, total, first half, total, second half, total, et cetera. So we, we had a huge edge and our, our, our actual, our actual stiff rate was pretty low, probably because people wanted to make sure they paid us because they knew we would win all the time. So why, why stiff me? If you can just go into debt yourself and know that you're going to be able to get out of it because you're going to have a good relationship with me. Yeah. And use the information accordingly. Exactly. Like the Asians obviously just loved yeah. it because they would find a way to make money. I'm sure they got stiffed. Yeah. I'm sure they got stiffed by their people, I, but my agents, the guys who were betting for me, you know, the, the, the pay-per-click guys who would find us accounts that we'd stick into the auto better. Those guys would rarely stiff me, even if they got stiffed, I think some of them did. Some of them are real. I mean, you you really are dealing with like the scourge of the earth and the gambling industry on both sides of the counter for the most part. Yeah. You're dealing, you're dealing with like street people who are just yeah. like, yeah, it's different. It's a different vibe, you know? A hundred percent. So you, you mentioned so many different things. I'd love for you to walk me through a typical day as an NBA syndicate. You know what I mean? Tell me exactly. Let's do it. You know, day, just throughout the whole day, you wake up. What's the first thing you do? Um, you know, tell me when the model gets run, yeah. when you start to look at things, when you start faking. So, things. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 So we had a guy, we, we had guys who do the minutes predictions. So first thing, first thing is, is, is run the minutes. So predict the minutes that each player will play in a game uh, at, you know, for the whole each team, both teams. So you do like some kind of prediction there. Uh, the, the sim will come up with a prediction, the model will come up with a prediction, and then a human will, will override. That's like the only human override, overarching part of this, the simulation that was the human actually had some input in was how many minutes a player would play. Gotcha. So the guy would do that. I wouldn't do that, but some guy would do that who worked for me, very hard worker. Um, then we run the model, see what the predictions are, see what the recommend them, the model with you know, our own website, our own like internal server, whatever that would spit out, you know, the recommendations in orange for which games we liked and, and the, and the level of confidence of the play. So like anything above a five would be a bet. That'd be like a theoretical 5% edge. It's probably like actually a two and a half, whatever, but sometimes it'd go up to as high as like 17, 18, 19 on some games. So those are the games we try to bet as much as possible usually, but it also could be some situations where, the coaches just come out and said, we're going to play a slower paced game. And the model doesn't know that. Does mm. that make sense? So, we yeah, like so to- usually, so the higher edges, let's just say like something like 18, 19%. Edge, did you ever say, let me just double check this. Man. Yeah. Usually like, we mostly flat bet. Like I would mostly flat bet the model. And then I would throw in my own subjectivity on top of that. Like we had a system that were the model at the time was Ewing. And then we had N, which was non-Ewing, which was my, were my bets. And very rarely would I go, I mean, I would go against what the model liked. In the beginning, like for the first few years, last few years I was working, I just didn't care. I just went with the model. It was fine. Maybe I'm going to miss a pen. So average day with someone runs the minutes, someone, uh, then I would go on and I would look at the recommendations. We'd try to figure out what other people would want to bet. We'd prioritize that. Like, okay, where are we going to be on our own on these games? Where are we? Because we're originators, but there are other, there's other groups that are betting too. And a lot of the times they would want to bet the same stuff we're betting. So those games you want to go out early on. What games do we think are going to hold up that we can maybe bet with our, with our, with our action accounts later on in the day? Um, so that would be that. Then prime the market. We call it prime in the market, which would be like, you know, faking Pinnacle in the morning, faking Chris, faking some of our leaky bought outs the wrong way, maybe putting in some real bets sometime along with Pinnacle. So Pinnacle doesn't really necessarily always know we're faking. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on the, like to answer, like depending on the year, it, it depended because when I was just betting almost all bots and we didn't have any huge accounts, that's how we would do it. We'd go in there, we would try to find, and then we'd bet at 10, 11 in the morning, nine in the morning, whatever, as early as possible, just be done. 
when we had some really big action accounts or some VIP, like we had some big bet three, six, five accounts. A lot. I, yeah. I can talk about all this shit now. Cause I don't care. I'm not in the market anymore. I'm not trying to hide anything. Yeah. Um, but we had some big um, bet three, six, five accounts with some social media superstars that were managed to open up the accounts. Uh, and they took a big bet from us and they would often take it in the morning. So we would, you know, try to like fake the market earlier, maybe bet them a little bit later, just get an extra one point or two. Uh, maybe put, do some closing line value, fake it the opposite way after like a lot of different stuff. But so that would be basically a key. Oh, that someone would go in do the minutes, which involves looking at the injuries we'd run. The, and then the model is constantly updating. The model would, would always look at the market, always look at our prediction, always look at what the line is. And every time a line changed, the recommendation would change because now the recommendation is based on the line. So maybe a play didn't come into value till later on in the day because some opposite group liked it. Now we have to decide, do we want to oppose this group? Do they know something we don't know? I learned that the hard way after the Donaghy scandal, where I was betting the opposite of all the Donaghy moves. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the model of liking, you know, betting against the, the, the three point moves on the fixed games that I didn't know about. Yeah. So I lost a lot of, I learned, and then I was like, I'm not, not doing that anymore. I'm not opposing these super sharp people that I don't know what their edge is. I didn't know exactly. that. Exactly. I was just like, I'm just done betting opposite sides. So that's kind of the day. And then, and then you, you know, go work out at like noon or one, depending on if I'm Pacific or, or, or mountain time where I was, I was in Mexico for a lot of this time. Um, uh, go work out, come back, see what's what on the, now what injuries are there? What other injuries are there? Um, you know, maybe watch some games from the previous day, just to kind of keep your subjectivity aspect going back when I was doing more subjective stuff. It really depends because like my career arc was so entirely subjective with a little bit of data a little bit of modeling along with subjective, subjective and modeling at the same time, and then pure modeling after that. And where I didn't care about what my mind thought because I wasn't, I wasn't as good as the model. I wasn't paying as much. I, I probably still could have done it, but I just wasn't as interested. I was kind of burnt out a little bit. Juice wasn't worth the squeeze when it came to the quality. Juice wasn't worth, exactly. Yeah. I want, I'm going to maybe I'll make like, and, and to be honest, for a lot of it, it was more like man versus machine for me. Mm, like, and mm. I did this, this, his, this model by picking out some games that are better. A lot of my subjective stuff that I knew about with the tendencies of coaches, we built into the model by using the data in a different way. So it didn't have any more end bets because the model knew how to predict the end bets. And that was factored in, the end being the non-model bets. Now the model is all of a sudden getting smarter because it realizes and also has years and years of my bets to kind of train itself on. Oh, so, beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, all, all that stuff. So it was, it was, it was pretty, it was a, that wasn't a huge part of it, but it was definitely part of it. Um, but um, yeah, it was a huge, uh, it was just a huge endeavor. And then, and then, and then you wait for the games. I love watching the games. I'd sit there and watch all the games on my, on my TVs. And we'd look and see if there's any halftime stuff, but any stuff that I spot in the first half, um, the halftime, the second half betting was the most fun for me because it was like the most mentally challenging because you'd have to watch the first half. You'd have to now steal your mind to make sure you weren't too high because you're winning or too steaming because you're losing and making sure you're making the right decisions on the second half. Cause I was doing a lot of subjective second half betting early. Yeah. On what I saw in the first half. Did you ever have an opposite uh, bet for the first half in the full game? Did that happen often or not? Rare? Or was it rare? Uh, like first half under and full, full game over? over. No, that, I mean, that happened when the books were completely clueless about how to make the first half and second half lines, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they weren't that I mean, they were super clueless up until 2005. They became super sharp 
only because they knew me what I had that market effect I was having all my followers who were following me. Then, then I think what ended up happening, I don't know exactly my timing is off on this, but there was a couple really, really sharp guys who are betters who went to go work for bet Chris and, or I don't know what's the name of, is it still called bet Chris now? What is it called? Um, or something. well, yeah, there's, yeah, something, yeah. Or 411 bookmaker.eu, whatever yeah. it was. A couple, a couple really sharp betters. I think one of the guys' names, I don't think they're like undercover or anything like that, but they were, were really sharp and they went and started making the lines and the lines got a lot, a lot better then. Um, and so the, they, their NBA lines were a lot better from that point on, especially not so much the full game stuff, but just, okay, they got the full game prediction. Maybe that's the same as it's always been. They're much better at like making the first half and second half line. Uh, based on the you know the ratio of first half points to second half points, I think they have the, they got the Israeli guy um, to be able to help them. Maybe um, yeah, he was okay. Um, there were some guys. I, th- I thought the guy's name was Matt or Cowboy or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know what the situation was, but um, you know, I didn't have a ton of respect for the lines makers, but I will say it is hard being a lines maker because they're making a thousand lines, and I've only got to find two or three that I think are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tough, but. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of the average day, watch the bets and then just do it all over again the next day. You know, a big part of it is I'm not later on in my career, I'm not doing a ton of the stuff. I used to be a control freak and I was the only guy, me and the guy betting. I didn't want anyone else to know about my, what my models, what I was doing, et cetera. And then I hired a guy to model. Uh, and then I hired another guy and then I hired some guys to help. And I started teaching them about this and that. But a big part of it is like being on Twitter, watching the coaches press conferences, seeing the availability of players, you know, the model would also like, the page would also highlight like, oh, this player is orange. So this game, we might not want to bet because there's some questionable stat, you know, standing on this player's availability. We want to know for sure if he's playing or if he's not playing before we actually go forward with making a bet, that sort of thing. I think there's so many nuggets that you said there, Bob. I kind of want to like, you know, I think one of the bigger ones is, you know, is being able to, I think flat betting is such a big thing. Um, a lot of people think, oh, you should bet with whatever you think, higher edge, higher bet. But like you said, you don't know if you're missing something or whatnot and um, and what other groups might have. Another thing you mentioned is if, if you're opposing other groups, um, there could be something that you just don't know. You haven't factored in why, you know, there's so many other bets you could place. Why go in opposition of somebody? Um, okay. Because usually, the, you know, let's face it, I think it, it's safe to say that um, – forget the referee scandal, but anything, um, I'm pretty sure your ROI wasn't as good on bets that you opposed another sharp sure. group versus uh, yeah. bets that you had no opposition for. So I think anybody that's, that, 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 that's looking to do this, uh, respect the market, no matter what, always find a way to respect the market and, uh, and, yeah. and, and learn from that. I tried to handicap the other groups a little bit, but it was tough to know what was what. Like there was a, there was a time when they were called like the Englishmen or the Englishmen. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a ton of respect for their stuff. So I would gladly go up as opposite of them. Um, Spiro you know, was big and QT. Spiro was big. QT. Cute thing about QT was like QT was a degenerate. Like he was good, <laughs> but he was subjective. I feel like the one thing I learned, the reason why I wanted to get into modeling more was because, you know, when I was single and I was doing this stuff, you know, I'm pretty even keeled. I've always been like a fan of stoicism and just kind of what can I control and being very, very calm at all. Not very reactionary, but like, you had a bad day with your girlfriend, you're getting into a fight. Now you got to make bets. And it's like, can you focus? Can you do this? And so like the model is just like, it's pure. It spits out a prediction. It's not ever having a bad day. Mm. And so I just wanted to have like 
a, a pure number that I could kind of like a touchstone that I could, I could reach out and be like, okay, this is where I know the value of this line is. And, and so I wanted to get away from the subject to where early in my career, I embraced that type of challenge of trying to like maintain my emotional control and discipline and making good predictions. But later on, I was just kind of like, like, I want to be able to have fun. I want to live. I want to be happy. I don't always want to be like, you know, a robot trying to predict the fucking outcomes of basketball games. So, um, so yeah, you got to have some, you got to have some level. Like, so QT, I think his down, I don't know if he had a downfall, but I'm assuming he, and I know there's some crazy QT stories. Like I know, <laughs> I know that the best one is like Chicago bulls versus uh, Miami heat where he was literally all in on the, uh, a friend of mine told me because he was betting this pinnacle live betting and he was betting, he was, he, he had bet the bulls pregame and the bulls were winning by some number. I don't even remember which game it was, but people can go and check it out. My memory's not that great. It was the first year of the first year of the heatles. Yeah. Like, you know, first year of like Dwayne Wade, LeBron and, and uh, Chris Bosch together. And they played, I think the best record in the East was Chicago that year, if I remember correctly. And they were pretty good as I think it was Derek Rose's, maybe it was his MVP or maybe it wasn't, I don't know. I'm too old to remember this shit, but, um, but I do remember that, there was a huge deficit in the game and QT kept on betting, kept on laying the wood on Chicago. Like Chicago was up by 12. I'm going to bet Chicago. I'm going to bet Chicago, but kept, kept on betting on Chicago as the, as the lead kept on dwindling down. Yeah. This is the, the legend of the story. I don't know how much of it's true, how much of it's fabric. I'm pretty sure it's true. To the point where his last bet was like, he laid like $4 and 37 cents. All he had left in credit to win like a dollar 38 or whatever. And, and make a long story short, Miami came back and, and won the game. And I think it, I think it, he blew out his pinnacle account. But so my point is, is like the subjective guy, like the model would never do that. The model would just, and that's where flat betting is like, okay, you've made your bet walk away. It's fine. Yeah. I've definitely doubled down on situations like in series bets. I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of like what I kind of, what I kind of loved was that people thought I was just a halftime guy mm. and I perpetuated that a little bit. Which in the beginning, I, that's what I, I never, you know, I always, yeah. uh, I, I knew halftimes was a big part of it. I didn't know yeah. how In the much beginning, until... to be fair, I was just a halftime guy. Okay. As gotcha. we got further on, like, you know, I, I liked sides, not so much in the regular season, but we did have some, they were pretty good. They're fewer and far between, not as many recommendations. And we definitely had a ton of full game totals. Uh, most of our, most of our edge was, if you look at like, you know, full game totals were a big part of edge because we could get down more. And so um, I definitely had some situations in the playoffs where like I would be betting a playoff series and I would double down and I, I would, I would, I would try to like bet more as the series went on, as I saw more information or I'd flip flop a little bit. Like I liked the team at the start of the series. I never made series bets as I got later on. So I thought those were just kind of like suckers bets, mm. but I would bet individual games. And, and then as I see like, Oh, they've made an adjustment. Now we got to go the other way. And so um yeah, it's it's challenging. I, I respect the people who still to this day don't believe in models and do stuff subjective sub, sub, you know, through a subjective manner, like feel betters or feel traders in crypto, or because you have to be like on all the time. And let's just face it, the machines are better than we are. Like they just are. Can and you be purely subjective today betting sports and be successful in your opinion? I think I could. Um, I think other people could, but not like super successful. I don't know. It depends. I mean. If someone, if I was able to get down as much as I could on, and, I, and I'm not talking about inside information, I'm talking about subjectivity, watching yeah. a playoff, watching a playoff series. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I could. I mean, I've done very well in the playoffs doing it. The model never did anything in the, in the playoffs, all subjective in the playoffs. So, you know, so you're, you're, you, you know, you're very successful. Anybody that doesn't, you know, I know, you know, there's a lot of 
people say, oh, no, Bob wasn't successful. I've seen it, you know what I mean, with my own eyes. And I've, I've, I've been in the woods and in the weeds, with, you know, seeing. And I, you know, I, I can attest to the fact that, you know, you had a big impact on the NBA market and, um, and you were very successful. And I could attest to that because I was, in, you know, working every single day uh, for the last, you know, for, for all those years. So if anybody yeah. listening uh, has any questions about that, uh, you know, there's no doubt that, um, that you know, everything is true um, on, on the level of success that you've achieved. Yeah. I used to get off on it a little bit, like on these poker forums on like where people would there'd be they'd have like there'd be a poker forum that had like a sports betting tab that would and people would talk or a sub, sub, subsection people would you know these like these guys would like sit there and they're grinding their little edges and they're talking about how i'm a fraud and, and you know on reddit or whatever and it's just funny to me because like i wish people thought i was a fraud i remember like i remember i remember i remember going up i remember when the heat played the the spurs the set the the second time not the first time the second time in the finals i remember playing in a poker game I'm, I'm flying to go to the NBA finals. I go over, I'm playing a poker game at the Aria Casino and I go over to the Aria Casino and I'm like, what will you take on game one of the NBA finals? The guy's like, whatever you want. I had no idea who I was, but whatever you want. I was like, great. I'm on 150,000 on the Spurs. They're like, no problem. Let me, I'll be right back. Comes back up. Guy's like, I can give you 1,500. <laughs> 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 I can give you 1,500. I was just like, this is like game one of the NBA. Are you fucking Unbelievable. kidding me? Unbelievable. Kidding me? Like, what edge am I going to have? It's disgusting. On the NBA finals in 2014 or whatever fucking year this was. I don't even know what year it was. Um, yeah, just absolutely absurd. But that was like, you know, but people really did think like, oh, it's all bullshit, whatever, da, 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 da. And I'm, yeah, I mean, I think like, especially when I was younger, I was like, kind of like, maybe not, I don't want to say overconfidently, but maybe part of that was like a little bit of, ins- like whenever you're really working really hard and people don't know you're good at something, because you always have to pretend you're, you know, you're kind of hot. It definitely bothered me more than it should have. But um, yeah, I always thought it to be kind of entertaining, you know, like that. I just, yeah. and then it's crazy too, because like the, I, I lived in Canada, pay, I was like one of the few only Canadians to ever pay. The, the Canadian government actually came to a conclusion that my, Sports betting was taxable because I was a professional, but my poker was not taxable. So I could play poker and not pay tax on it. But if I, if I, if I bet on sports, I had to pay tax on it. And so like I was paying taxes in Canada, I was making money betting in Canada, running everything through my Canadian bank account because they were cool with that. And I had to have like, and then I was just like, this is like, I, okay, you think I'm a fraud? Like, why don't you please call up Revenue Canada and tell them I'm a fraud? Because I, I would love to, we don't know in Canada, gambling is not taxable unless you're a professional. And there's only been a few people who have ever, been qualified you know i'm canadian have ever qualified as being a professional most of them are people who had guaranteed edges because they were getting rebates mm-hmm. or people who had inside information at the horse race track like there's there's a couple cases like that i think now they're starting to be more aggressive with poker players um but you know for sports betting i was just like bro like they they came out i mean i i, I was a, i should i left ended up leaving canada to go live in monaco because i was just so irritated by the the, the decisions they were making that were like arbitrary. Oh, this year you, were, you have to pay tax on your poker. This year, no. Like it was just so weird. You know, it was like a weird situation. Yeah, I bet. Um, so you know, when did you know when did you decide to walk away? When did first before before about walking away from gambling? When did money no longer become a factor where you stuck around just for the thrill of winning, or was it always about money? You know, you know, obviously, I don't think it was about money. You mentioned that you want when you put your mind to something, you want to succeed. So, yeah. um, but when did money not, you know, the, the appetite, what your appetite wasn't able to be satisfied, but you still did it just to succeed? Yeah, I think like, um, I think like the, 
for me, the money was always important because I wanted to buy a basketball team. Yeah. Like that was yeah. it. I mean, the teams are trading for two, $300 million, 400, it kept on the price. I thought I can achieve that. Now, whether the NBA will ever allow a gambler to buy a team is another story. Um, I think now they would, back then people thought it was hilarious that I would a, ever be able to work for an NBA team, B, be able to buy an NBA team. But that was kind of like why I kept going. You know, I'm, I, I was pretty lucky if you were to add up all the money I made over my career betting, it's, it's like, I think people, you know, it doesn't mean I have that much money from betting, but like, you know, I was making, did it for, from 2000 to fucking 2015 ish with a one year gap at, you know, 10 million plus a year for during that time period, like eight, 10 every year. So you're looking at hundreds of million, 120, hundred something million dollars. So the money was always a factor where it became like kind of cute was when crypto started getting big because I quickly started to realize that crypto was more interesting to me. Uh, I kind of got red pilled on Bitcoin very early on 2013, partially because of how difficult it was to, I wasn't, you know, I would, I would have a bank account in Canada they would HSBC would close my account in Canada because it's gambling. Where is this money coming from? Who is this guy? Why is he paying you? Why isn't it coming directly from the sports football? He's my beard. You know, that's why he's paying me the money. I just, <laughs> This became difficult to bank to transact. And so yeah. it kind of became interesting for that. Um, so that's probably like, you know, when, when Bitcoin had its first big run up in 2016-ish or whatever, uh, and I was always accumulating, like I've never really ever sold Bitcoin. I've always just bought and held, bought and held, crypto bought and held, I'm a, I'm a long-term holder. Um, uh, that's when it became like, okay, I can make $10 million betting sports, but my portfolio was fluctuating by five X that every day because of the crypto swings. Like yeah. what exactly, <laughs> you know, like what is, what exactly am I trying to accomplish here? So um, that was kind of when it became kind of not that interesting. I don't know if that was your question, but yeah, that's around the time. That's that's the crypto really cemented the fact that I didn't want to do this anymore. A lot, there's a lot of other factors too. Like I found it more, you do the same thing for 15, 16 years of your life. I mean, I'm sure you, you're a testament to that. Like, it's just like, it's, after a while, you're like, okay, if you have other options, you're going to want to try to do other things. Yeah, you got to diversify somewhat and, and change it up a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 being a professional gambler, Bob, and, and myself being a professional gambler, you kind of approach life and in, in, in different things. You start seeing the world in a different way. What lessons do you think that kind of that betting professionally has taught you that most that when, you know, particularly, you know, when you went to work for the Mavericks, um, what, what do you think you kind of brought to the table there? And, and what vision did you have that other people who don't bet didn't have? Yeah. I don't know if it's, if it's necessary. I mean, there's, so there's, I don't know if it's a, if it's a thing that's, I think it's more for people who are data driven versus betting. Mm. There's a couple of things. One, like, okay, like there's people who gamble who don't have good self-control. Those guys aren't great at being like, they wouldn't translate well to having like a rational approach. But I think what, where I, where I was very different and was maybe stood out where I think it was, was an edge is that I was able to have like a long view of everything and not be short-term result, you know, short-term results oriented. The variance didn't really ever impact me. Um, I just had a very, very, and, 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 a, and a confidence in my predictions. Like I saw someone, someone sent me a, a clip of like some current NBA general manager who talked about how, because, you know, gambling, I was wildly stressed about gambling, but they, the models didn't really apply to the NBA, you know, for front office building. And I just think that's like, first of all, what do you know about what my models have? Like, I think, I think that the, having a model that tells you something that's predictive is good. Yeah. My models were geared primarily towards gambling, but we built models that were 
for, for player performance as well and player projection values. It's different. And so, I mean, the big thing you get is you just get like, you're just not swayed by variance. Like the game of basketball is a highly variable event. These teams are taking 40 to 53 pointers a game. The shot in and of itself, an average shot is like 37% to go in. You're going to have like, I think just the other day, the Mavericks, I think shot like something, something like two for 41 or some number like that from three. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, like coach would be like, well, what did you see? What, did, what went wrong? And it's like, I mean, nothing really went wrong. It's like, they make shots. Like, what do you want me to say? And, and also I, I wouldn't get upset by that. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear it on my sleeve. Like I remember one coach came up to me, one of our assistants came up to me and was like, it doesn't seem like these losses bought like this, this loss bothered you. And it's like, and this is a guy who, you know, picks up a trash can and throws it across the room at halftime to prove a point. Cause he's upset. And it's just like, and maybe it did get the team fired up. Maybe it didn't, or maybe he just really was upset. I don't know. But I'm like, if I thought getting upset would help us win games, I'd be the guy, I'd be the most upset guy here because I really just want to win. I just don't see how it helps me make better decisions. So to me, it's like where gambling teaches you is you're just you're gambling in crypto. And anytime you're having wild swings, you learn that there's a long-term. And if you have an edge, eventually you'll, your edge will be, you'll be able to apply out your edge and you'll see the results. So as long as, as long as you build out a proper game plan and your, and your priors are correct, uh, gambling will, will, will bear fruit. Now, if you have bad, if you have bad information, it doesn't, you know, being a, you know, having that attitude is not going to work. You're just going to lose money without getting upset. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Great advice. You know, to be able to stand the swings uh, of once you're able to st stand the gambling swings, life swings aren't really that bad. Um, no. And, and, and any job. Wait till, you, wait till you got red pilled into crypto, where your net worth is swinging eighty percent in a week. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, you know, you even said, your own words, Bob. You said you're an arrogant guy, and I've listen. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I think people think of me as I want to walk that back a little bit, just because I feel okay. like because I, I actually am. I, I know what I know, and I know what I don't know. Hundred percent. And I've heard, listen, I've, I've never, we, we never really talked. I just admired you from a distance and I've known you from a distance and listen, with success comes ego. I myself am guilty right. of that. Um, you know, I'd be bullshitting you if I told you I wasn't proud of my accomplishments. We're all proud. How do you try and keep yourself grounded and keeping your ego in check um, given all your success? Yeah. Well, a big part of my success, to be perfectly honest, is surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me. Hmm. Like the guy who built my model was or, you know, we built it together, but he did the grunt work. I mean, he, he, I could not have did what he did. No chance. Uh, brilliant mathematician winning math contests in college, you know, you know, Ivy league educated. So surround yourself with people like that. And you become humble because this guy could sit there and approach a problem from a completely different angle. And, you know, I, I was in awe of his ability to do that type of, not just math work, but programming. I mean, he could, he literally could have succeeded in, in like he worked for a high frequency trading firm before that, or like a, a quantity, not maybe high frequency, but a quantitative trading firm like DE Shaw before that. He, he could have literally done whatever he wanted to do in the, in the field of prediction, find all everything data because he was that good. So find people like that, surround yourself with them, learn from them. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's a big part of it. I mean, I, I'm, I know what I know. Like, I know I'm very good at some things. And I know I'm not good at other things. And if you come at me and tell me about like, oh, I don't think that team's going to win the playoff series. Like I watched a few games yesterday. Yeah, I'm going to be pretty dismissive of you. Whereas I'm sitting here, you know, I've been building models since fucking 2000 and 
seven with like one of the, some of the best mathematicians in the world. And we're coming up with, you know, so that that's a big part of it. Just surround yourself with people who are smarter than you that you can learn from and really work in a collaborative environment. I'm, I'm, I'm not the, I don't think when I was younger, I think I was not the most collaborative person mm. because I, I think I was arrogant when I was younger in my career, because I just got super lucky. I went from being a fucking sky cap at the Winnipeg airport to being worth like $6 million in two years and maybe not even two years by betting, just by using my brain to predict the outcomes of fucking sporting events. It's hard not to have like some kind of weird complex, I think. Mm -hmm. But I quickly realized that a lot of luck, you know, came into play there. I grew up in a way that I allowed me to learn the way I got, like I'm good at that shit, but my life, I'm 46 years old and single. So it's not like I'm a great, I'm not like winning at the game of life necessarily. I might have a ton of money in the bank, but I'm not, you know, I don't walk around thinking I'm God's gift to like how to live a perfectly well-balanced great life. I think I'm learning as I get older. I wish I learned that when I was younger. So, yeah. Well, you still got time. I, 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 still got time. Yeah. I appreciate that. Oh, what, what, any wedding bells in the future or not? No, I'm single, bro. I'm on the hunt. You're, on, you're, still, you're still on the hunt. I'm still on the hunt. I was in a relationship for a while. I was engaged and work out. And uh, yeah, just, I mean, I'm not like definitely a focus of mine right now is just to kind of get out there more because I'm, I'm, I'm at heart. I'm an introvert. So for me, it's like a bit of a challenge. So um, yeah, just kind of going to cruise the Mediterranean this summer and see what, see what I can run into. <laughs> that's beautiful. I love it. So, any, um, so that's great that you said, you know, any regrets, um, Bob, that you might think of, um, you know, I know you said maybe back then you were a little bit, you know, a you were a little bit arrogant. You, you didn't collaborate as much. Um, do you have any other regrets maybe that you wish you did this or that or not, you know in, sports, not in sports betting? No, like no. a lot of life. I, I try not to, to be, people don't know this about me, but I'm like, I'm not like super religious, but if I was, I'd be a Buddhist. I think Spiro's also a Buddhist, by the way. Uh, yeah. Um, and I just really don't, I try not to live my life with regret in general. So like, I try to make good decisions in the moment. And, um, but you know, I, I think maybe like, I, I, I don't really have any from gambling, to be honest. I think like I have some regrets in my Mavs tenure a little bit. Like I wish I was a little bit more smart about the inner workings of an organization and how some people are going to be threatened by you and and no matter how nice you are to them or how humble you are it doesn't matter because at the end of the day you are going to take their job if you succeed and they don't want that and i just i i, I was in like a zero-sum game my whole life where you play a game of poker you lose you just you know you've lost or you bet sports you lose you know you've lost i didn't think the person could i just thought he would be aware of the fact that he was very likely to lose i thought that I didn't count on the mutually assured destruction aspect of it, where he was like, well, I'm probably going to lose, but I'm going to make sure this guy loses too, which is what happened. So I wasn't aware of, I, I think the social, I think being more aware of the social aspect of, you know, work, maybe you could say life as well. Like there is, a, I'm not a huge connector. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty insolent. I, I keep, I keep my circle very tight. And so I think maybe that has hampered me a little bit, but regrets and gambling, not really. I mean, I, I wish I got out of it a little bit earlier, to be honest, just because I feel like the last two years, I was just kind of going through the motions. I wasn't that into it, but it was, it was definitely a fun, I mean, it was every college kid's dream, you know, when I was 35, it wasn't so much fun anymore. It was just more of a grind, but when I was younger, it was a lot of fun. Well, you know, speak from somebody that's still in the business. Uh, we miss you dearly. And uh, what's it like now, by the way? How awesome! <laughs> it seems like a dystopian nightmare. 
Yeah, you know, a lot of this, the techniques that you mentioned, uh, they, you know, a lot of them still work today, you know, flipping whales and, and, yeah. uh, you know, just, you know, try to find uh, either big bookmakers or uh, that, you know, that are, are big whales. And that's a big part of it. A lot of it's the same thing, you know, a lot of, you know, as much as things change, they also stay the same. So um, it's uh, trying to get down and that's everything. Uh, you know, I think once you learn how to win, that's such a small part of the equation or, or you know, right. it, it's, it's getting down and, and it sucks because every other thing, you know, st- any, any other market, if, if you're good at it, um, liquidity is never an issue. But for some reason, the sports gambling thing, like, because it is zero sum yeah, and yeah. somebody's always left holding a bag somewhere, um, it's, uh, it's tough. So, you know, that, that's all I can I don't say. Envy. But- I, I'll tell you one quick funny uh, Bet365 story. We had some really good Bet365 whales for a while. Yeah. And then they they canceled one of our accounts because they saw someone who was affiliated with this social media person took a picture of my dog on posted on his Instagram. And, <laughs> and I think that's how they figured it out. My dog Coltrane, rest in peace, was pretty famous for a while. And so, um, but but so we got another guy who was also a, a kind of like a trust fund. He had like a good, you know, he had a Wikipedia page. He had like a good backstory. So we got this guy and it's just a regular, not through their VIP program. So I think they closed their VIP program, or at least they were less accepting of it. We got him in through post up and we thought, okay, let's build this account up ourselves. And we got in there, acted like a fish for like a week, two weeks, three weeks. And then we get a call, like, we're worried you're a problem gambler. Like, would you have time? <laughs> oh, man. Would you have time to it, speak to one of our counselors? And I it, literally. Instant erection. <laughs> instantly. No, dude. They, they wouldn't let the guy bet. He had to send like. Oh, okay. Afford to lose the money. He had a, like, a letter from his bank showing that he can afford tax returns to show that he's not gambling more than he can afford to lose. Like, wow. And I was pretending. Yeah. I was just like talking to the guy and I was just like, look, he's like, what do I do now? Cause he, what, he had a good backstory, but it wasn't like he had it. Like he wasn't betting his money. He was, he was betting the group's money, my money, you know? And it was just like, I was just like, wow. Even, even, even when you got a guy who's trying to lose, <laughs> they won't let you bet. <laughs> yeah, it's like, they're too worried about him losing. It's like, it's just, it was really weird. I think, but that was like, I think, I think the UK, because it's a regulated, I think in the U S they would, they would still, they would salivate for a guy like that. Yeah, of course. The UK had such a blowback. Uh on their problem gambling, because that's the part that people don't realize that all these bookmakers, these, and I, I don't like any of them. I'm sure they're nice people, but the companies themselves are parasitic. Mm. So I love what you're doing is, you. is, is that they don't care. They, they, they want you to think you can win. They're happy ruining the lives of the degenerates still in America. There'll be a social change at some point, but there's people who are losing their hard-earned money gambling. College students are losing more than they can afford to. And everyone should be an adult and should be free to do whatever they want to do. That's fine. Someone wants to, to lose their, I, I, someone's a problem gambler and they have a problem gambling. It's probably an addiction of some sort, probably. But if you're going to allow that, then, and which they do allow, no matter how many pamphlets they hand out to these people, they do allow it. Then for God's sakes, let the guy win. Let the guy who's going to be on the other side of that equation win a little bit. You know, exactly. That's the part that irritates me more. And I oh, think like- it's ridiculous. I, I, you know, like, and, and the thing that really gets me also, Bob, is that they'll put out these, this ad campaign that we welcome winners that you could win and you're okay. And you'll have a guy pictured with a big check in his hand. He just hit a, he just hit a 18 parlay for 185,000 and all this stuff. And it, it they, they put this fake 
a, a, a you know a sense of you know anybody if you win everybody's going to be able to win and i'm trying to push that this is not the case that if you have any sense of winning if you have any type of edge any clue they're going to treat you like shit and that's the reality of it sure. and um and even for originators even for originators like, i get it for people who are just trying to piggyback on other people's plays and maybe that's my own personal bias there because but i think like the originators like how many, I don't even know, how many of these sports books are there out there now in America? Let's say there's 50, right? I don't know. Yeah. Say that low, that low. Why don't all 50 of them just agree to take $1,000 on from this one? Like, it just seems like it's, but it's such a copycat industry. They, they don't even, they don't make their own lines. No. They copy some other places' lines. So because of that, they can't identify if you're sharp or a square. So they have no, they have no ability to discern that. It's just a really offensive, and I know, and I'm still a fan of the NBA and I, you know, I, I watch the NBA and, I, and I'm inundated. And this is funny because I'm a former gambler and I'm inundated with these ads and I find them so objectionable. The ticker at the bottom of the screen at the score, the line of the game, the wizards have a fucking sports book in there. In there. And it's like, you're, I get it. They're trying to make their games more relevant and gamblers do that. But then nobody should be able to bet. How about this? No VIPs ever. You know, it's a, it's a recreational thing and you can only bet a certain amount of money and you better be able to, like, it's just, there's no really good answers. Once you start outlawing people that can win, it's like, how greedy are these companies there? I'm, I'm hopeful at one day for you guys that there will be, and, and maybe, maybe someone needs to create this, maybe it needs to be like a decentralized thing where it's just a liquidity thing, because like you talked about finances is, 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 is a zero sum game to some extent, but anyone, nobody's getting limited. It's a, it's, it's, it's open for everyone, but that's because there's a trade on every other end of it. No, the house isn't really taking any risk. And I mean, they are, but it's not, not in theory. Right. So something like that, if there could be like some giant decentralized pool where you match up with other people and it's, it's there, but it's, you know, there's always going to be it's, uh, the devil's in the details and maybe we're not quite there yet. And maybe it has to be financialized maybe world sports exchange was like on the, you know, the early days where now you're not betting on the team. You're buying shares of the team in the game. Mm. It's trading fluctuating. Cause you know, the minus five minus six, the point spread is a beautiful invention, but it does make it difficult to have like a matchbook style, you know, thing where it's peer to peer. It becomes a little bit more, it can be done, but it's a little bit more difficult. I, I think also, what's lacking is the art of bookmaking. I think that I don't, there is such a thing as a talented bookmaker and, um, and there are few and far in between now um, where, you know, when, when, when you were coming up, Bob, when I was coming up, there were a lot more of them. There was, you know, the, there was it, 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 to fake a market. It wasn't just pinnacle and Chris, there was other places that would, you'd have to give them a bet for them to move for the most part. Whereas yeah. today, you know what I mean? These guys, there's not even somebody moving. It's all automated process using, right. using a cons- getting a consensus line from, you know, the two or three places like a pinnacle, Chris, maybe circa. And, and these three places are just using a consensus line. Now, now as a professional and you would, you know, you obviously would know this is that, um, it makes it easier for us because if I know, if we figure out what your algorithm is on what you're looking at, no problem. We'll, we'll, we'll break it. But why do we have to go through that? And, and, and once like, you know, and then, and then and once you figure it out, you're still going to have the trouble of getting down. Exactly. So it, it, it's like, you would wish, you know, I hate going in back door and anything, but you know, unfortunately this is the same way, just like it was where you were, you know, to have to use beards, to have to be able to do this. And it sucks. I hate doing it, but it's a necessity in order to last, 
exist as a professional sports better in this day and age, just like it was back then, you have to go in and disguise the work, just kind of like a card counter in blackjack or in anything where you have an edge, you know, where, you know, you, you got to wear one of those funny noses and a sunglasses or whatever. It's um, kind of the same thing. You know, you got to, you but, can't but, but just now come it's, too, it's too bad now because now it's also dystopian with the player's card and it's tied to your, like, you know, you're, you got to have your, social security number and it's like oh 100 100 percent, and that's why the, the the key thing like you said is you know is profile is setting up a profile where they have no idea this guy looks like a complete dummy could be from celebrity or could be whatever yeah. it's, it's all the, the same techniques are still going to work even more so believe it or not um Probably, yeah maybe you i don't know, know. yeah you i know. think that the key is 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 you have to use their greed against them yes and that's what i learned very early on is Oh, you want to book this Instagram celebrity because you think he's a sucker? Exactly. Congratulations, you know, and and go for it. Exactly. Versus versus somebody like a Chris that will give the house limit to everybody, no matter what like it is. Yeah. Where you know what? If they think he's a sucker, maybe we'll give him two X. But these guys, we're talking five X, ten X, a hundred X, even. You know what I mean? Yeah. If they yeah. think you're a rich sucker, you know, when you when you're booking a hundred X, I don't give a shit. There's no that's insane. Like yeah. you're going to get caught with your pants down and uh, you think you, you, you know, you have it all solved. And that's when, you know, guys like us will just come in and, 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 you know, before you know it, you, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're stuck with your hand down your pants. For sure. um, For so. sure. Well, keep up the good fight. If I ever, if I ever decide to wade back, you know, crypto ever goes to zero and I decide I don't want to be a dog trainer anymore. I'll, 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 I'll try, maybe I'll have to try to get back on the horse or something. You're, all, you're always, listen, Bob, for me, you know, not that I could welcome you back or not. This is a free market, but you're always welcome back if there's one. And we'd, uh, I'd love to see you back, back in action. And, uh, and I yeah. know you'd be able to crush it. Um, so Bob, you know, I always end off the name of the podcast is called be better betters. Um, usually I, I ask all the guests at the end to try to give some advice on, you know, for maybe an up and coming sports better or pro semi pro anything, you know, given your expertise and all that you've done throughout the business, what one bit of advice that you could give to the audience to be better betters? Yeah. I mean, the key is, is, is being honest with yourself. And stripping yourself of delusion and the way to do that is to keep accurate records you know like i i, I could not be delusional about my success because i'd hit the pnl tab on my on my program and it would tell me exactly what my profit and loss was at all times and that i mean to me data is the answer in, and you don't have to have a ton of it how about just keeping track of all your bets and making sure you know time of day when you're betting them how you're you know what your process is if you're not using a model or using subjectivity the journal that's what i would do i would keep a diary and right. And so I could go back and be like, okay, what's, what was my state of mind when I was making this three X bet? You know, was, was I, wow. was I steaming or was I, you know, probably wasn't steaming cause I wasn't ever a steamer, but maybe my version of steam is, 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 is less than someone else's, but it's still steaming as far as I'm concerned, you know, so you made it, you, you kept a diary this whole time. Yeah, I, I did. I was lucky because I, you know, most of my stuff and, and maybe I'll do something with this at some point, but most of my stuff was like over Skype or over, uh, MSN messenger or whatever, whatever the new ones were after that. And so I running diary of all the orders to all the player uh, running all my work, all my employees, we all communicated over encrypted messenger. Mm. Uh, and so there's that we weren't in the same room together. It was all remote. And so, and it wasn't over voice. It was usually over text. And so mm. there's a, yeah, I have that somewhere. And then I have like the actual notebooks of when I started out and I still have the original notebook of when I placed my first like 75 and hundred dollar bets when I was working as a sky cap. 
Wow. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. so like, cool, and dude. And then the summer I kind of lost my mind betting the Canadian Football League where I was like betting on credit and I probably, I wasn't a, quite a degenerate, but I was certainly on the way to degeneracy if I didn't catch myself. That's for sure. Awesome. That, that'll be great. One day maybe you release a, a book or something about that. Yeah, or, I thought about something like that. Yeah, something maybe about something. Yeah, it'd be something. interesting. I don't, know, I don't know how interesting people find it, but I, I like looking back at it and just looking at how much I've changed over time and the process has changed and how much the world has changed, frankly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bob, thanks so much for coming on, brother. I know um, I've been bugging you to come on for a while, and uh, I appreciate you finally um, uh, taking me up on the invitation. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, we'll uh, we'll get to meet and have a couple of drinks, have some dinner soon. Yeah, I love that. Eventually. For sure. Yeah, check you out for sure. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. And thanks so much for the time. Until next time.